I'm often asked, is Christmas a pagan observance? And I mean that. I'm asked that quite a bit. In fact, I even have telephone calls, especially from a certain group of people. Is Christmas a pagan observance? My response is quick and to the point. What do you think I say? Absolutely not. However, the way many people observe it is pagan. The way many people observe it is pagan. Christmas is a Christian observance. But by the same token, the green tree, the wreaths, and the revelry, they are, ha- they are pagan in origin. We as Christians have done much to convert or Christianize these accessories in many ways to soothe our own consciences. But we've done it. But Christmas is a Christian observation. What we must do, therefore, is to observe it in a Christian way. Doesn't that make sense? Some Christians and most non-Christians believe that Christmas celebrations started on year one following the birth of Jesus Christ and that it is, has its roots in the scriptures, the Bible. But that's not so at all. Christmas, the way we observe it, does not have a biblical basis. In fact, when it was first introduced into the newly formed American colonies, Christmas was actually outlawed because of the drunken revelry that always accompanied it and the celebration of it. It wasn't until 1856 that the Massachusetts legislature finally got around to legalizing its observance. In fact, if you were alive then and you went around saying, Merry Christmas, anybody, you could be fined five shillings. That was the fine for wishing anyone Merry Christmas during that time before it was legalized. You see, that's why it's possible for Christmas to be eliminated entirely and not one truth of Bible doctrine would be affected. I'm talking about the observance of Christians, the way we do it. It is entirely a man-made celebration that has absolutely has no prescriptive or directive biblical foundation whatsoever, as far as the celebration itself is concerned. In fact, the only reference to the world giving gifts to one another is in the book of Revelation, when they celebrated the killing of the two witnesses, and they gave gifts to one another. It's the only way. It's amazing. However, having said all of that, but the way Christmas is celebrated, the Bible nonetheless has much to say about why Jesus Christ was born. And in fact, it also gives us some directives, principles of how we could celebrate it if we want to do it in a Christian way. And that's why I've entitled my message this morning, The True True Reason for the Season. That's the Bahamianese, right? True True. We want to talk about the true, true reason for the season. Now, the implication of this truth as taught in Scripture 
is so radically foreign to our way of thinking about it, I can safely predict to you right now that many of you are going to hate me after I finish the message. In fact, while I'm going through the message. Because it is so radically different from how we normally perceive it or observe it. We want to look at the scriptures today to see that if we are going to celebrate Christmas, and I believe we should, how can we do it in a Christian way? How can we do it in a way that represents the word of God rather than the tradition of man? Take your Bibles then, please, and turn with me to the first passage of Scripture. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. This is a book, most people say the theme is joy, because joy is mentioned in this book more than any other book of the Bible. Joy. And it is a book that talks about joy. The joy of a pastor in seeing his people grow in the Lord, the joy for the coming of Christ, and so on. But the background of the book, the background for this passage that we'll be looking at, is a squabble between two women in the church. These two women could not get along, and the prominent women in the church, it appears. And so they were fighting and bickering, and was causing division within the church. And Paul is appealing to these women and the church as a whole for unity and for love. And as we go through this passage, you will see the importance of doctrine and the impact true doctrine has upon the way one lives, has upon living Christian life. Because Paul uses this occasion to try to bring about reconciliation between two fighting, squabbling women to present one of the Bible's most vital doctrines concerning the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't do it by coming and say, I want to teach you doctrine. He doesn't say, I want to teach you how to get along. So this is a very practical book, but it's based on a vital doctrine of Christianity. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to help restore unity and bring about reconciliation before the devil uses the situation to divide the entire church and impede the ministry of God among them. And that's when he uses, that's the opportunity he uses to present this major doctrine. Paul begins his appeal to these ladies with laying down the basis for his appeal. Look at his appeal. Look at verse 1. He says, Therefore, If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love in Christ, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit in Christ, if there is any affection and compassion in Christ, that's the basis for his appeal. His appeal to what it means to be in Christ and how we are to reflect our position in Christ. Now the word if there is not 
an iffy if. In other words, it's not an if of doubt that shows something may be true or not true. In the Greek, this is called an if of certainty. It could be translated with a since or because. And so what he's saying is, since or because these virtues of encouragement, loving consolation, spirit-motivated fellowship, affection and compassion are all found in Christ, because that is true, then this is how you should live if you are a Christian. He's bringing doctrine to impact upon the way we live. That's why when people say doctrine, man, I don't want to hear no doctrine. Too boring. I can take a look at those people's lives and I can tell you why they're living the way they're living. It's because they don't know doctrine. And if you don't know right doctrine, you're not going to live right. And so Paul makes appeal number one in verse two. He says, make my joy complete. Make it fulfilled. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The implication is all of those virtues are to be found in Christ. So simply put, the Apostle Paul is saying, be like Christ toward one another. Be Christ-like. That's all he's saying. The basis of the appeal is, make my joy complete. The rest of the verse describes how it is to be done. Paul is saying, I want to have complete joy that my children are walking Christ-like. Now I'm going to describe to you how it is to be done. Being Christ-like results in mutual love for one another. Being Christ-like results in unity in spirit. Unity and purpose. The implication is that these women were not Christ-like in their daily living and their relationship to one another. They were unlike Christ. Therefore, they were causing havoc and assembly. Friends, listen. You can be sure of this. Whenever, whenever we as members of the incredible body of Christ don't behave Christ-like in the assembly, we can cause trouble. The only people who really cause trouble, biblical trouble, I'm talking about trouble that matters, is people who are not Christ-like. Not Christ-like. I'm not talking about trouble or stirring up if we know that we are lethargic, we're not doing what God wants us to do, and therefore we have to... Like, for instance, let me give you this illustration this morning. We talked about this reach-out today on Christmas Sunday. There was some flack. There was some feedback. Why on Christmas Sunday? You're going to disturb our coming to the church. And this is when we want to hear a good Christmas message. You understand what I'm saying? So they looked at me as causing trouble. I like to cause that kind of trouble. But I'm not talking about that kind of trouble. You see, Paul is telling us that whenever we do not behave Christ-like, we're going to cause trouble in the church. Then he goes on to show the result of becoming Christ-like. Verse 3. 
Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's being Christ-like. And the implication is here, if these two ladies were living like this, they would not be fighting with one another and causing trouble in the church. Notice the marks of not being like Christ in our behavior and attitude. Selfishness, conceit, pride. That's a result of not being Christ-like. But being Christ-like results in unselfishness, humility, compassion, and loving generosity. Paul is contrasting the difference of being Christ-like and not being Christ-like. But then he goes on to present what I believe is one of the greatest challenges in the Bible for believers today. Notice what he says in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now simply put, he's just simply saying, be Christ-like. But I want you to take a look at this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have the same attitude, the same spirit that Jesus Christ has. In other words, if you are to be one who does not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, you must be Christ-like in your attitude. If you are going to be someone who does not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, you must be Christ-like in your attitude. That's the message. The implication is that a Christ-like attitude will lead to Christ-like living or Christ-like actions. The apostle then goes on to explain in detail exactly what it is he's commanding these believers to do. And in so doing, he gives us the true, true meaning of Christmas. He gives us the reason for the incarnation of the Son of God and what it means for us as believers today. How the significance, the nature, the meaning of that tremendous event must impact us today as believers if you're going to be Christ-like. This is a rich passage, pregnant and bursting with spiritual significance for our lives today. To understand and obey what is taught here, is to tell us exactly what it is Christmas should be like if we want to celebrate it in a Christ-like way. So I'm going to ask you now to take off your shoes, uh, your spiritual shoes. (laughs) Because we are going to approach holy ground right now. Notice what he says. Who? Christ. Although he existed in the form of God. This simply means, but profoundly states, that Jesus was God. 
That's all it means. Though he existed in the form of God, that's his essence. That's his nature. In theological language, that's his ontos. That's who he is. God. And he knew it. He was God. But he did not regard equality with a God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to. In other words, being God was his own interest. Being God was his own interest. This profoundly means that in view of man's dire need of a savior, Jesus did not regard his function, his activities as God, as something he had to hold on to if it meant that man would have no savior. His interests in doing what God does, he put aside. So he could meet the interests of sinners. He was willing to give these functions up for a while in order to help, in fact, to save a helpless, needy, spiritually bankrupt people. He was concerned about the interest of others. He was concerned about your interest and my interest. This is spiritual interest here. And this is the core. This is the essential message of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is the core message of Christmas. Christmas happened because Jesus Christ was not only concerned with his own interests, but for yours and mine as well. That's why Christmas happened. Notice the next verse, the next words or phrase. But, contrast now, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. What a statement that is. He didn't empty himself of his divinity, mind you. He could never do that. He was God and he still is God. But he voluntarily divested himself of his divine functions or interests or the outward display of his godness for you and for me. But now, how did he do this? How did he empty himself? How did he give it all up? His interest for ours. How? Notice what it says in the text. Taking the form of a bond servant. And being made in the likeness of man. That's how God entered himself when he taught of the interests of others. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Now the word bondservant is literally and more accurately translated bondslave. He was a slave voluntarily. The master of the universe voluntarily became the lowest of slaves. Being made in the likeness of man. That's the incarnation. That's Christmas. And that's how Christ showed that he cared for our interests more than his own. 
being made in the likeness of man. This refers, I say, to the incarnation. God becoming man while remaining to be God. That's what Christmas is all about. And if you miss that, I don't care how you celebrate Christmas. I don't care how many people you give your money to. I don't care how many of your in-laws or your outlaws or whatever it is you give gifts to. You're not celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You're celebrating it in a way that man celebrates it. Now, I'm not saying those things are wrong, mind you. But don't leave out. Don't leave out recognizing that the true meaning of Christmas is God emptying himself so he could become a man for you and for me. This is, what how, this is how Christ emptied himself of his own interests. He took on the limitations of man even though he was God. This, I say again, is the essence of Christmas. This is the true, true meaning of Christmas. This is the purpose of Christmas. I believe also in context. This is the model, the template, and pattern of how we should observe Christmas. If we're going to be Christ-like, we must observe it the same way he did. How did he observe it? By not being concerned with his own interests, but with the interests of others. And as a result, he gave himself. He gave sacrificially. That's the model, the pattern, the template of how we are to observe Christmas in a Christ-like way. Now, Paul explains this more fully, I believe, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. So let me bring this in as well. He describes for us what it meant for Jesus Christ to empty himself of all of the the manifestations of his deity and took on the form of a man. Verse 9, 2 Corinthians. For you know, and we should know this, and the more we know of this truth, the more it will transform our lives. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, God, yet for your sake, the sinner, the poor sinner, he became poor. He became like us, without sin, of course. But the incarnation in becoming a man is described here as becoming poor. So that by his poverty, we might be made rich. Now, the word grace here is one of the most beautiful words in scriptures. It has many different words that are close to it. I call them relatives. Some of the relatives of grace is love. Charity, mercy, kindness, favor, goodwill, pity, thanksgiving, and even the word reward. All of these words and concepts are tied into the idea of grace. The basic root meaning of grace is beauty, charm, loveliness. That's the basic root word for this, word grace. It's illustrated in the word, the English word graceful. When we look at something that's done so nicely, we look at a skater on the ice, we look at a gymnast. They're graceful, right? Because it's a beautiful act. And we're describing the beauty of the movement. 
And so this word became to mean acts of beauty, actions of beauty. And that's why we have acts of kindness, acts of mercy. Whenever you see something, you say, isn't that a wonderful act? Wasn't that a tremendous act? A beautiful act? That's grace. You're saying that it was a gracious thing to be done. Now, Paul, though, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses this word to describe the act of Jesus giving himself for us. And so he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now, Please take this in. What he's saying here is that the incarnation was a beautiful act on the part of Jesus Christ. Christmas was a beautiful act, a graceful act, a magnificent act on the part of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more graceful than the person who gives generously And without constraint or pressure. Think about it yourself. You go to someone and you know he's well off. And you have to beg him to give. Think about that same person when he comes into you. Hey, I want help. What can I give? And he gives without even being asked. Without even being pushed or prompted. He gives because it's a beautiful thing to do. That's what happened At Christmas, friends, God becoming man, emptying himself of all of his riches to become poor, was a graceful act. It was an action of beauty. An act of beauty. Notice what he says. Though he was rich... Yet for your sakes he became poor. This is what Christmas is all about. And I believe we've missed it too much. And we've allowed the world to tell us how to observe the birth of Jesus Christ. And we've missed out on glorifying God in the way we should every time this year. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He takes us back to the incarnation of Christ, to the first Christmas, and explains the nature of that beautiful event. Though he was rich, yet he became poor. That's a beautiful act on the part of God. That's the beauty of Christmas. These are great decorations, but that's not the beauty of Christmas. If we miss the fact that it was God who became a man, we missed the beautiful act of Christmas. When Jesus had everything, when he was rich in power, when he had omnipotence at his command and could do all the things in the universe he wanted to do, he laid it all aside for us. He gave it up willingly. He gave it up graciously. And it was a beautiful act on his part. He became poor. He gave up his own interests. So he could take care of our interests. And I'm saying to you, to be Christ-like in observing his birth, we must do the same. He surrendered the independent use of his power to the Father 
and shed his outward glory for the appearance of flesh and blood like you and me. He, the sovereign, omnipotent Lord of the universe, became a servant not only to his father, but to us as well. When he was rich in love, and all the angels of heaven adoring him, bowing down before him, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. He laid it aside. He became poor. He became the one of whom Isaiah the prophet said he was despised. This is the God who had everything. He was rejected by men. We esteemed him not. He was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He had no beauty. Did you notice that? He had no beauty that we should look upon him. Yet, the most beautiful thing God could ever do was to become a man. But we didn't see any beauty in it. And the sad thing is, many Christians go throughout the Christmas season and still don't see the beauty in it. When he was rich in his resources, when everything was his, he came so that he could say of himself, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He had no home. He had to borrow a manger in which he could be born. He had to borrow a penny when he wanted to perform a miracle. He depended on others for his clothes. He went about with no certain dwelling place. And when he died, he had to borrow a grave in which to bury him. Now don't you listen then to all of these wealthy preachers who try to justify their extravagant living today by saying that Jesus was a rich man. The Bible says he became poor. And he was, not only in spirit, but materially as well. This was a part of the stoop that Jesus made when he became a man. He did not become a rich man. He became a poor man. Spiritually and materially speaking. That was a beautiful act. That's what we celebrate. God becoming a man. Notice the next passage. Why did he empty himself and become a man? Why did he become poor? So that by his poverty you might be made Rich. Notice it now. So that by his poverty we might be made rich. Our richness depended upon his poverty, not his richness. The true, true meaning and message of Christmas, therefore, is not that a rich God became a poor man. So that poor man become rich in grace of God. That's a part of it. Christmas is about giving to the poor, us, even though it costs him his everything he had. So by very by 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 application, Christmas for us should be about giving to the poor even though it costs us much more than we would normally like to give to the poor. 
Christmas then is not about partying. It's about sacrificing for others if we can do it Christ-like. You see what I mean? What I meant when I said this was radical? Because we get all the joy about giving presents to one another. And right now you can say, oh boy, I ain't going to give you no more presents. No, please don't stop. (laughs) That's not what I'm getting at. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm getting at this truth. We must not only enjoy the peripheral and give up the true meaning. We've got to learn how to do both of them and make sure that one manifests the other. You understand what I'm saying? In fact, Christmas is not even about family. Where do you find that in the Bible? But that's a sacred thing to people. It's for the family. I'll do everything to get home for Christmas. Now please, come home for Christmas. But if you leave the Christ of Christmas out of your celebration, you're not celebrating Christmas. You're celebrating your family. It's not about the family. Christmas is about Christ. Christmas is about Christ giving himself to the poor. To the poor in spirit. The poor in material things as well. Christmas is about the rich becoming poor. So the poor could be blessed. Notice how Christmas giving is described at its core in this passage. It's sacrificial. According to the scriptures, this kind of giving is only Christ-like giving when it costs us something that we feel. Well, I had planned to do this, to visit this, to make this trip. But in order to help this family, I have to give it and I cannot do it anymore. That's the kind of giving. Not, well, I'm going to help. And I have all kinds of things left. That's not what he's talking. I'm not saying that is bad. Now, don't go to the wrong ideas. I'm just trying to get at the core message of Christmas. And to show how far we have come from it. I want you to see how Christmas giving is described at its core in the giving of Jesus Christ of himself, of the Father of giving his Son. It's sacrificial. It costs. And it costs the most precious things. Paul describes the cost in verse 8. Notice the Bible text. Being found in appearance as a man. It means becoming a man. He humbled himself. As God, he emptied himself. He gave up something precious that he had. As man, he humbled himself. It's a whole different concept here. How did he humble himself? By becoming obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. In other words, he did not only give himself to die... But he chose to die in the most humiliating, painful way possible. His emptying of his own interests as God led to his incarnation, becoming a man. His emptying of his own interests as a man led to his dying the most painful, humiliating, and depreciating death possible. The death of the cross. For this gracious, beautiful act, God rewarded him. But before we go to the reward, 
Don't lose sight of the beautiful act. It was his becoming poor. As God, he emptied himself. As man, he humbled himself. And God rewarded him highly. Notice verse 15. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow. You see, if it's one thing that we as Christians should be doing on Christmas is bowing in recognition of this beautiful act that occurred on the first Christmas when God became poor by becoming a man, by humbling himself as a man, by going to the cross for us. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, beloved, this is what Christmas should motivate us to do. To do such beautiful things toward others that it will cause them, cause them to glorify God the Father. Not us. Let me give you a practical current illustration. That's one reason why we didn't publicize what we're doing today. Some folks ask, hey, call the Guardian, call the Tribune, bring the, let the choir, let the, 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 the TV come down, see what... No, 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 no. We did it that way. We got our reward already. We should do things that cause people to glorify God and not us. Jesus' incarnation was a miracle of the third generation. No, not third generation. Third what? Dimension. Young people, you know what I mean? The third dimension. It's that thing you cannot see. That dimension is just out there. Parallel. Jesus' incarnation was the incarnation of the third dimension. What do I mean? Jesus left his glory in the third heaven. And he came down to live parallel with us. The divine touched the sinful without becoming sinful himself. God with us because he was like us, one of us apart from sin. God coming from the heavens of heaven to become a man while remaining to be God. Praise, thanksgiving, and worship should therefore be an integral and essential part of our Christian Christmas celebrations. If we leave it out, we're celebrating Christmas like all the pagans do. We must do it in such a way that they would glorify God. That's why we have a Christmas Day service here. We don't call it a service. What do you call it, Anton? Anton is sleeping? Christmas Day party. We call it a birthday party for Jesus Christ. A birthday party. And we're having one this Christmas Day. 
We want all the children and the parents to come especially. And we want to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We want to have a party for Jesus. And so the children will come and they'll bring gifts that we give, that we help to, do the, to the, the, the children of AIDS, victims, and so on. But we have a party for Jesus on the day we've celebrated. Doesn't that make sense? So I hope all of you will be here. I tell the children they can come in the pajamas. You don't have to dress up for this one. Come and share the Christmas story. Please, come out here. But let me say this to you as I close. It was a miracle that first Christmas when God became a man. Miracle of miracles. He changed lives by the millions because of that beautiful act. I want to suggest to you this morning that we also have the opportunity of working miracles ourselves during this Christmas season. We can work miracles. We too, like Jesus, can follow him in working miracles in the lives of others who are poor and are broken in spirit if we reach out in a sacrificial way. We can work miracles in their lives. Let's pause for a moment. And I want you to prayerfully choose a family or individual for whom you will create a Christmas miracle this year. Then, do whatsoever God tells you to do. Do a gracious act. Do a beautiful act, even as Christ did when he demonstrated his love from above. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Take a few moments, quiet reflection. First, thank God for his blessings in your life. Thank him most of all for that wonderful miracle, the incarnation of Jesus Christ at first Christmas. Thank him for that. Now ask him to lay upon your heart someone, family, an individual that you will reach out to this Christmas season to do a miracle for in the name of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Father, give us now, we pray, the grace, the love, and the compassion to follow through with the commitments we have made to you in our hearts today. And all of God's people said, Have a most blessed Christmas.